Amen. So there's a lot that I can say about discipling, okay? I'm not going to be able to say everything in 30 minutes this morning. That's just not possible. And so I'm trying to distill what I think is of utmost importance for you in your time in college. That's what I'm working on this morning, all right? And so I just want to begin with an illustration that I think describes most Christians, that we are either one or the other. In Israel, there are two bodies of water, the Sea of Galilee in the north and then the Dead Sea farther south. Both of those bodies of water have something in common and they have something that's different. Both have fresh water that is flowing into them. However, the difference is that the Sea of Galilee in the north has actually an outlet for that fresh water. So fresh water is flowing in. It's got an outlet of water flowing out. However, the Dead Sea, right, the Dead Sea, on the other hand, has more water flowing into it, but everything just stagnates and then dies because it has no outlet. So with the Sea of Galilee, stuff flows in, things flow out. It's full of life, right, because it constantly gets fresh water. Whereas the Dead Sea, it is what it is. It's the Dead Sea. It's where stuff goes to die. And so it stagnates and dies because there is no outlet. A lot of us have fresh water pouring into our lives throughout the week. You've got those Bible studies throughout the week. You've got this teaching time. You're about to hear a, a sermon this morning at 1030. All of those are examples of fresh water flowing into our lives of God's word. Sadly, though, Though we've got fresh water flowing into our lives, there are many for whom that fresh water is not flowing out. We're constantly consuming wonderful material, and yet our soul is shriveling up because there is no output to others. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Every Christian is like one of these bodies of water. And so at the outset, you need to ask yourself, which one of these bodies of water am I like? Every Christian is like one of these. They're either consuming content and becoming stagnant, or they're putting out what's being put into them, and they are full of life. Well, I want to help us think practically about how we can be conduits of God's grace to others rather than cul-de-sacs of all that's being put into us. Everybody know what a cul-de-sac is? I'm just assuming. Okay, right? little roundabout. You kind of just, it just all stays there. There's really no outlet. Okay, all right. So the first thing that we need to know is what is a disciple? That's the first question. What is a disciple? So if someone, someone is new to Christianity and they come up to you and they're reading the scriptures about Jesus having disciples and they ask you, what is a disciple? What would you say to them? And this is, right, this is a dialogue, not a monologue. So what would you say to them if they ask what a disciple is? Okay, a student, good. Others, what would you say? You can just be quick. You don't have to make it super awkward, right? We don't have to be awkward in here. So just start shouting out answers. Yep. Follower. Okay. What else? Anything else that comes to your mind about a disciple? Do what? A Peter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so explain a Peter. So what did Peter do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, I think when you look at a when you look at the definition of a disciple, a disciple is essentially a learner. That's technically like what that word means in the Greek. It's a learner. And so a learner implies that you've got a teacher and you're following someone and you're learning from them. So there are disciples of all kinds of people, right? There are disciples of I mean, think you can just think of examples. Right? There are disciples all throughout our culture. And biblically, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, someone who learns from Jesus, like the, with the example of Peter. Okay, so a disciple, I think the first thing you see right there on your handout, is one who follows Jesus. Jesus calls us to follow him. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus gathers a crowd along with his disciples, and then he says to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Jesus calls us to come and to die in order that we may live. That's what he's doing. He calls us to come and die so that we may not forfeit our soul, but have eternal life. So it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, a nerd or a jock, an extrovert or an introvert. It doesn't matter. The only requirement is that you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what matters. doesn't matter who you are, but that requirement alone. Disciples are those who've entered into a personal, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And they are those that have received the gospel, the good news that God has created us for his own praise and glory. He's created us for relationship with him, and yet what did we do? We rejected that authority over us, and instead we rebelled against him, seeking to live our lives as kings and queens of our own lives. And because of that, we're alienated before God. We are separated before God because of our sin against him. However, God in his mercy and his grace sends Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins, so that we can be reconciled to him through his own death and resurrection. And so for all those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are those who receive eternal life. They are those who receive forgiveness of sins. They are those who are disciples of Jesus. As it's been said, being a disciple of Christ doesn't begin with something that we do, but something that Christ did. That's where it begins. Christian discipleship begins when we receive that good news and we're united to Christ through faith and repentance. So understand, a disciple is not one who is just like an extra super holy Christian. That's, that's not what a disciple is, right? As if everybody else is just kind of a normal Christian and then a disciple is like an extra holy Christian. There is no distinction. With Jesus, there is no mushy middle, no, no middle ground whatsoever. You are either a disciple or you are not. It's that simple. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I just want to encourage you to turn from your sin, trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, and live the life, literally, that God has called you to live. A life that is full of joy, that is full of love, that is full of peace, and yet you will have sorrow in life, but that's not the end of the matter, right? The best is yet to come. And so the reality is that we're all disciples. We are all disciples. You're either a disciple of Satan or you're a disciple of Christ, biblically speaking. When I know that it seems kind of like, man, that's kind of blunt. But when you look at the scriptures, that's what it's laying out. There's a reason why Psalm 1, or actually, yeah, Psalm 1 lays out two ways to live. There's the righteous, there's the wicked. It's pretty simple. We're all disciples. We're either a disciple of Satan 
or a disciple of Christ. One is going to give you death. The other will give you life. And the question is, whose disciple are you? That's a big question you need to be asking yourself while you're in college and especially this morning. So to be a Christian is to be a disciple. There are no disciples who aren't Christians, and there are no disciples who aren't following Jesus. And so discipleship, you're following Jesus, and discipling, helping others follow Jesus, is just Christianity 101. That's just basic Christianity, okay? Part of that means, though, that we're going to imitate Jesus. So what does a disciple do? He imitates or she imitates Jesus. In Luke 6, 40, Jesus himself says that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So in fact, the goal of every disciple is just being like Christ. That's what the goal is. That's the goal of a disciple. Jesus commands us to imitate his love. He says in John 13, 34 through 35, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we're to love one another as Christ has loved us. And it's actually how the world knows that we are his disciples. So how does the world know that you follow Jesus? Well, it depends on how you're loving other people, right? It depends on how you're loving other followers of Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit about how to do that this morning. We're also called not only to imitate his love, but to imitate his suffering, just as Peter calls us to do, uh, is to endure unjust suffering with patience in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, where he says that because Christ has suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps after he had just called them to endure unjust suffering, right? You endure unjust suffering by looking to Christ and following in his steps. You're not alone in this thing. Jesus has already gone before you. Before you get the crown, when Christ returns, you will bear a cross. That's what Christian life is going to look like. Well, not only are we to be disciples who imitate Jesus, but we're also called to make disciples. And so that's the third thing that you're going to see under point one. A disciple makes disciples. So not only is it about you following Jesus, but also helping others as well. Jesus' last command before ascending to heaven is found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 in what is known as the Great Commission. Someone want to read that on their handout. Is it on your handout? I think it is. Okay. Someone read that on your handout. Okay, what is the last command? Kind of already hinted at it, but what is the last command? It looks like there's a lot of commands, and they definitely take the force of it whenever you get down into the weeds of that text. But what is the command itself? Yeah, to make disciples. That's the command right there. Everything else in that passage is just showing you what it looks like or the process of making disciples. That's what it's getting at. So the last command is to make disciples. So someone who follows Jesus is dedicating their lives to helping others follow Jesus. That's part, of, that's part of what you get when you come to faith in Christ. Not only is it about your own growth, but it's also about the growth of others alongside you. The life of the disciple 
doesn't just look like you, your Bible, and Jesus every morning. It is that, but it's not just that. Instead, it entails a web of relationships bent on doing spiritual good to one another. Real spiritual maturity in your life is going to happen, not just when you're hungry for your own growth, but when you're actually hungry for the growth of others. That's when it's going to happen. That's when stuff is gonna get cranking. And so I just wanna help us think through a broad definition of discipling, okay? Discipling, it's helping others be more like Jesus by doing deliberate spiritual good to them. Is that definition in your handout? I think it is. It is in your handout. Excellent. Okay, yeah. So discipling is helping others be more like Jesus by doing deliberate spiritual good to them. Now that can look like a whole lot of things. It is broad, okay? There is a spectrum of what that can look like. And so that could be praying with someone over the phone. It could be working with someone through a 12-week Bible study in the book of Mark and asking for accountability questions after it. It's broad. It can mean a lot of different things. And I think it's helpful to clarify the difference between discipleship and discipling. I've already kind of said it, but discipling is you helping others follow Jesus. Discipleship is my following Jesus. You're following Jesus. Does that make sense? Head nod. Excellent. All right. So this is just a reminder that discipling isn't delegated to a few who are in ministry or to those who are extroverts. Jesus has called all of us to make disciples. He wouldn't call you to something, and I think this is helpful. He would not call you to something if he honestly didn't think you'd be able to do it. How are we able to do it? Anybody want to give an answer? You can shout it. There you go. Holy Spirit, right? You're able to do it because he's giving you the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. And so he's not going to give you something that you're not going to be able to do. And he gives you the Holy Spirit so that you're actually able to go and to keep the commands he's given to you. It's a reminder that real spiritual maturity, right, is focused on helping others. And so discipling means that you have others in your life who are doing spiritual good to you, and you're also seeking to do it to them. So that entails that you've got relationships, it means you need to be building relationships. So where does that happen? Where does that happen? Well, what do you know? You're in a local church on Sunday morning, right? It happens in the local church. But I want to give you an argument from Scripture on why that's the case. Why it's not just me kind of going out at random with all the Christians I know just kind of doing spiritual good. That's great, but ultimately Jesus has given you a vehicle through which discipling and evangelism happens throughout the world, and that is the local church. So, D, a disciple prioritizes the local church. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives Peter and the apostles the authority of heaven to affirm credible professions of faith in those who are professing that faith. Meaning that, do they proclaim a clear gospel? Okay, yes. Does their life line up with that gospel? Yes, it does. He gives Peter and the apostles the authority to be able to affirm whether their gospel profession is credible or not. That's what he does. Then in Matthew 18, Jesus then gives that authority to the local church. That's a big passage. He gives it to the local church. The only two times that Jesus uses that word church in the New Testament, Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Those passages relate to Matthew chapter 28. I don't want to lose you right here because I'm getting somewhat in the weeds. 
But those passages relate to Matthew 28, 18 through 20 that we just read, where Jesus says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Then he commands all his disciples, as we just saw, to make disciples among all nations by what? Going, baptizing, and teaching all that he has commanded. And yet the way disciples are to do that are through local churches that Jesus gave the authority to make clear who is and is not his disciple through baptism in the Lord's Supper. That's why you have that baptizing right there. Now we see this early in the book of Acts. Okay? This is not like I'm just kind of out of thin air, a couple of passages. You got a whole book that models this for you. So early in the book of Acts, um, just after Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we're told that those who accepted his message, that is the gospel, those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. So Peter is going out proclaiming the gospel. People receive the gospel. They are then baptized and then added to the number of the church there in Jerusalem. We often just call that membership, meaning that people know who is a part of that body. They're added to that number, meaning that there is a fixed number that makes up that church in Jerusalem. They know who, who is theirs. And so in Acts 14, we see this on, ongoing throughout Acts. Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are sent out of the church in Antioch to proclaim the gospel and to plant churches throughout the Roman Empire. So what are they doing? They're going out, preaching the gospel. People receive the gospel. They are then baptized, and a church is then planted in that place um, that they have just preached the gospel. And then they move on to the next place. They come back and they establish elders to give oversight and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, as Paul says in Ephesians 3 and 4. And so it's why Paul writes also many of his letters to churches. He's writing to churches. Have you ever noticed that in the New Testament? That's who he's writing to the majority of his letters. Now, sure, he does a one-off kind of personal letter, but he's writing the majority of the time to churches. And so how do we keep the commands in, say, Ephesians or Philippians or 1 Corinthians or Romans? How do we keep those commands? Well, it implies that you've got to be a part of a local church. Oftentimes, because of our individualized society, we read the scriptures in just a personal way as to how does this apply to me? When in reality, we first need to ask, how does this apply to us before it applies to me? That's what we've got to be asking. How can you keep commands if you're not in the context through which he gave those commands? That's who he's writing to, and that's how you do it. By joining local churches wherever you're at. If you get jobs after college, go join a local church in that city that you're in. While you're here for four years, join a local church in this city. Okay, That's the way it was meant to be. The only way that we can consistently stir up one another to love and good deeds is by not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. The only way you can do that is by not neglecting to meet. So we've got to meet. All right, so just consider how important the church is. Do you all have uh, Hebrews 10? You, you got that in your handout, right? Excellent. Just consider how important the church is in protecting us in shaping us in our walk with Christ. Think about our cultural moment for, the sec for a second, okay? Not only before COVID hit, but even after, uh, with Christians spending more time at home, uh, more time at home, you know, just on their phones, before their TVs, 
watching cable news, whatever. I know most of us in here probably don't watch cable news, but you know what I mean, right? You're on your phones, you're on your social media accounts. And what's happening is in that entire time, Christians are being formed and shaped by TikTok, by Instagram, by your news feeds, more than they are by the local church, more than they are by one another. And that's not a great thing. Because what's happening is, is that the culture is just stoking fear and loathing, when in reality the church and disciples of one another are to be stoking love and faith. That's exactly what we're to be doing. The pandemic has not caused this, but it's exacerbated the issue. And though the world is changing before our eyes, Christ's command still remains to make disciples. And so even more now than ever, we need to be shaped by God's word rather than the word of the world. And this ultimately comes through spiritually meaningful relationships within the context of a local church. That's where it happens. And so the local church is not optional. <laughs> it's not optional. That's just basic Christianity. It's not optional. In one sense, it's the basic discipler of Christians. That's what Christ has established to do the discipling work in your own life and to equip you for the work of ministry. That's where it's to happen. It's the first place that we need to actually look for discipling relationships. All right, that's the what of being a disciple. Now I want to look at why, just very quickly. Point two is quick. Why do we disciple? The first reason that you're going to see there is that we disciple out of love. That's the first reason. The motivation for our discipling others begins with a love for God. God loved us in Jesus so that we would love him. And the way that we love God is by loving others. And so in Mark 12, a lawyer approaches Jesus and he asks what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus responds in verse 30 of Mark 12 by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. The Lord wants everything from us. He wants our love. He wants our motives. He wants our hopes and our aspirations to be first and foremost directed toward him. He wants full devotion. And then Jesus responds to the lawyer with the second command. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So one comes before the other and it flows out of the other. We can't love others without a love for God and we can't love God without loving others. Loving your neighbors, as it's been put, actually completes the duty of love. That's what it does. And so our love for one another is actually a litmus test for our love for God. That's what it is. Secondly, not only is it love, is love a motivation, but also obedience, which is odd when you think about it. Really, duty, obedience, that's really a motivation for following Christ. Jesus says so in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And later he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So we obey Jesus' command to make disciples out of our love for Jesus. But why do we do that? We do that because that's ultimately the good life. That's what the good life looks like. That's the life of joy, rather than trying to run forward outside in the world and then it gets stripped from you and you're broken and destroyed. That's the good life. Obedience shows what we most love. And so we love Jesus by obeying his command to make disciples and helping others follow him. So a life that obeys Jesus out of love for Jesus leads actually to greater joy in Jesus, contrary to popular opinion, which is the third thing, joy. 
So consider the reward of discipling, the reward. It's a motivation. Reward is often a motivation. Discipling produces joy. It is a joy-inducing effort and endeavor. That's what discipling is. Someone read uh, 3 John 2 through 3. This is fascinating, by the way. Okay, little background on this, Third John 2 through 4. So John's writing to a man named Gaius, in part to encourage him in how he's been welcoming traveling missionaries that have been coming to his church. So he is writing to just encourage him uh, in that work that he's doing. But then John goes so far, the Apostle John goes so far as to say that he has literally no greater joy than to see Gaius walking in the truth of the gospel. No greater joy. Now, hold on, John. You're telling me that you've got no greater joy, meaning like that stokes greater joy in you than Jesus does? Is that what you're saying? I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I would say because of his joy in Christ, whenever he sees other people following Christ, that is just going to stoke up more and more joy within his soul. And what's incredible is that the spiritual fruit of others ought to affect us. The spiritual fruit of other people ought to affect us our hearts. We have no greater joy than seeing others become more like Jesus because God is glorified through it. If our greatest joy comes from God being glorified, well, then it makes sense that when people bear fruit, they glorify God, that our joy is increased. And we should have no greater joy than that. This joy is the reward of the heartache and the messiness of discipling relationships. And they are going to get messy. People will sin. People will be uh, hard-hearted at times and reject counsel that you give them. It's, go- it's going to get messy, and you're going to have to give tough counsel at times. And I think it's a reminder. As Paul talks about presenting the Colossians mature in Christ, he talks about it as a toil and as a struggle in Colossians 1, 28 through 2, 5. And so maturity in Christ will come with difficulty, but the reward is actually seeing it pop up seeing spiritual fruit pop up in the lives of others, and that itself will create joy. It will produce joy in our, hi- in our hearts. Discipling, that means, is going to take perseverance. Because it's a toil and a struggle, it's going to take perseverance. So what would you say gives you no greater joy right now in your life? It could be a whole host of different things. You don't have to answer that. I just want you to think about it. What gives you no greater joy? It could be a family member or family. It could be a meal that you love. I mean, you know, who knows? It could be Onyx Coffee. I mean, it could be the university saying everything is shut down, everything is online, and you're like, yes, I can sleep in, I don't have to go to class. Or maybe you're dreading that and you want to go to class. What brings you no greater joy? What a compelling reason to make disciples. No greater joy. Do you want joy in your life? Disciple other people. But how do you do that? Number three, how do you do it? Discipling just does not happen out of thin air. It's not just going to happen. It entails relationships. Relationships take time. They take initiative that we've got to take. And these relationships are going to include Christians and non-Christians. 
And so I want to begin with relationships with non-Christians. Part of discipling is actually being a witness to the one that you follow. I mean, that's what Jesus commands his disciples in Acts as well. Disciples aren't made without evangelism. That's why Jesus says to go and then to make disciples. In order to make disciples, you've got to go. You've got to go to do that. There are people out there who are not disciples of Jesus that need to be made into disciples. And so he calls us to go. And so as Jesus is ascending to heaven, he calls his disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Evangelism is just one aspect of discipling. That's just one aspect of it, of discipling. It's telling others who don't follow Jesus what it means to follow Jesus. It shows them what that looks like as well. So God places us in our families. He places us with our friend groups. He puts us in classes and dorms, uh, in clubs for a reason. And that reason is to make disciples. It's to proclaim Christ. It's to proclaim the gospel of his grace to those who are destined to hell apart from Christ. That's why it's good news. You don't have to go down that trajectory. You can have new life. And evangelism is one of the most loving things that you can do for somebody so that they can follow Christ and experience the joy that you're experiencing. So start small and build relationships where you're at, whether that's your dorm floor, your apartment floor. I'm just getting practical right here. There are many ways that we can start, but just start with the stuff that you're already in. If you're in a sorority, if you're in a, if you're in a club, if you're in a Bible study, if you're in on your dorm floor and you've got people gathering regularly, start investing in those relationships and just begin there. Then go to, event, go to events together, study together, invite them to Bible studies. You just bring them along with you. That's really what it looks like. And then come to our evangelism training throughout the semester, which we're gonna be holding, uh, I don't, obviously not on campus, um, but probably here or somewhere else but we will let you know what that's going to look like and get trained in evangelism of knowing how to transition into gospel conversations uh, with those that you're seeking to minister to. Secondly, relationships with Christians, not only with non-Christians, but also Christians. The other aspect of discipling is helping other Christians grow in Christ's likeness. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul tells his disciple Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who are able to teach others also. Stare at that verse for a second. I want to show you something. Stare at that verse. Do you have that verse? Yes. Excellent. Stare at that verse for a second. So right here, Paul is giving us four generations of discipling relationships. So it's Paul to Timothy, and then Timothy does what? He commits this to faithful men. Third generation. Then you've got a next generation. Those faithful men then go and do what? They teach it others. Yeah, they commit it to others also. And so we are called to pour into others so that they will then go and to pour into others also. That's what he's getting at. He tells Timothy to find faithful men who are able to teach others what Paul has already taught him. And that's exactly what we're to do. We're to be looking for faithful, available, and teachable people. Fat people. Faithful, available, and teachable. Right? I know it's a bad acronym, but you can think about it, okay? I mean, just think about it. Those who are faithful, look right in the verse, commit to faithful men, faithful men and women. So we've got to commit what we've been taught to faithful people. They've also got to be available. If they're never available and they don't ever want to meet with you, well, then that's probably not going to be the most strategic thing ever. 
And as well, they need to be teachable. Notice right here, commit to faithful men who are able to teach others also. So they're teachable, and they're going to go and give it to other people. So we need to find faithful, available, and teachable men and women to disciple. But first, we need someone teaching us what we're to be like so that we can teach others also. So we've got to find someone to disciple you. Find somebody to disciple you. Since the church is the main vehicle of those relationships, that's the place that the Lord has established for committed discipling relationships to happen. So look for someone within the local church. This means, right, that you've just got to be intentional. You're going to have to take initiative. You're probably going to have to sit somewhere else on Sunday morning. Like when you go into that main service, you're going to have to sit somewhere else rather than kind of all huddled up in the balcony. Instead, we've got to kind of move out, go meet some other folks within the congregation, stir up conversation just by asking them who they are, how long they've been at UBC, um, and then just getting into conversation with them. And over time, as you go to the various things of the church, whether that's Sunday morning, whether that's the nine, whether that's Sunday night service, or whether that's Wednesday prayer gathering, when you go to the regular rhythms throughout the life of the church, you're going to meet people. And over time, you're going to get a better idea as to who can disciple you. Now, if you get to a point where you're like, man, I have been trying and I cannot find anybody to disciple me. Well, then just come talk to me, come talk to Joy um, or anyone else, and we can help you find someone to disciple you. So look for people to disciple you. And then remember, when you meet with them, discipling is a two-way street. Oftentimes when we get in this mentor mentality, we think that it's just kind of this person is just going to give me everything I need and I have nothing to offer them. When in reality, you do have much to offer them, right? And so be asking questions. Discipling is a two-way street. They're giving you something, but you're also going to be giving them something as well and you're going to be helping them to grow also. As well, find someone for you to disciple. So you need to be discipled and then you need to find someone to disciple. So just as you would look for someone to disciple you, you got to look for that in others. Same thing, someone who's faithful, someone who's available and teachable. Consider helping out with high school ministry or middle school ministry. Start investing in those kids uh, while they're young and just teach them the scriptures. You might say, well, I don't really know how to read my Bible. That's what those discipling relationships are for. So what you've been put, what's been put into you, you just go and give it to other people, right? Think about being a conduit. You're getting in things and you want to put it out. For older students, consider reaching out to new freshmen, meeting with them regularly, pouring into their lives. And after you've tried that and you're still struggling to find somebody to disciple, obviously come talk to us. More than happy to help you do that. But what's involved in that? What does that look like? Well, I think that time is both spontaneous and structured. And so sometimes when we're seeking to cultivate spiritually intentional and deep relationships, that's going to look like a structured time where you like do a 12-week Bible study through the book of Mark. That's what it can look like. But it can also be spontaneous where you just go over to a mom's house and chaos is breaking loose. Kids are running everywhere. She's trying to do laundry or she's doing whatever and she's home on the weekend and you're just entering into that crazy mess. That's what it looks like. Because what are you doing? You're learning what it looks like to parent, right? And to love and care for your family in those moments that are chaotic. And so you're learning by catching these things, not only teaching these things. So that's what it can look like. It can be spontaneous. Um, it can also mean helping out um, somebody within the church doing their lawn, 
you know, whether that's spreading mulch or doing yard work or work on the house, whatever that may entail, and you're having spiritual conversation while you're doing that. That's what it can look like. We see this with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, where he lays out very specifically and formally in a sermon what it means to follow him. And then we also see it with Jesus and his disciples whenever Jesus uh, meets the Samaritan woman and he approaches this woman. Not only that, she's a Samaritan woman, which is totally taboo in Jesus' day. And yet his disciples come and they're just observing and watching him do this as Jesus is breaking boundaries in order to take the gospel uh, to those whom society has outcasted. And so his disciples are picking that up. That's what their life is to look like. And so it means doing life together. Go along with somebody as they go to the grocery store, as they go pick up furniture in Kansas City, or if they, whatever. Go along with them throughout their life, and you incorporate others in your life as you go along as well. All right, last thing I'm going to say is that of show and tell. So part of it is that discipling is both caught and taught. And so not only are we going to be teaching God's word and speaking God's word into the life of one another in a formal and informal sense, but we're also going to be learning from just watching people. One of the, to be honest with you, this is actually how I think the Lord used this to to bring me to, to faith in Christ when I was in college. So freshman year, Humpty Dump, ninth floor, penthouse suite. Uh, do y'all know what hump dump is at the U of A? Yep. So it was a dump. And it had no AC. It was burning hot all the time, uh, except in the winter, and it was freezing cold. Um, but we did have heat. So hump dump, a guy, I tell a guy that I'm a believer, and he's like, oh, well, you need to go with me sharing the gospel. But yet I'm totally not living like a believer on the weekend in my fraternity house. No way. And yet I wholeheartedly think I'm a believer, and yet my life looks nothing like that. Well, he takes me along with him, and we're going out sharing the gospel in Hump Dump, just going around from door to door into all these guys' rooms, sharing the gospel, and I'm giving, sitting there giving them a testimony. And yet the Lord uses that to convict me of my sin over time and to bring me to faith in Christ. But what's the point of that? What was I doing? What was he doing with me? He was basically discipling me in the context of evangelism. He was taking me along with him, right, and showing me how to do evangelism, how to share my faith. Just so happened the Lord decided to save me through it. So praise God. Um, but that's what that can look like. Discipleship in the context of evangelism. Loving someone, you know, loving your spouse, being patient with your children, learning discipline and diligence. You're looking at all those things and the people that you're discipling, and you're also uh, seeking to do that for others. Paul says to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That means your life has to be worthy of imitation. You're not going to be perfect, and you are going to fail, and others need to see you fail because they're going to fail as well. But they also need to see you fail well in one sense. They need to see you respond to that failure. All right, so you can't disciple everyone, but you can disciple a few. Just as Jesus discipled 12, he had 12 disciples, you're probably not going to disciple 12. <laughs> and so you can disciple a few, but you can do spiritual good, whether that's sending an encouraging text of scripture to someone who's struggling, right? That's a part of discipling, of doing spiritual good to others. You can do that. And so focus on a few, right, and do spiritual good to a lot and start simple. Disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. That's not varsity Christianity 
That's just Christianity 101. All right? I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go into our discussion groups. You've got your questions on the back. You can just stay at the table, get to know one another, um, state each other's name, where you're from, what year you are, um, and then just start working through those four questions on the back of your handout. And then I'll conclude our time probably around 10, 15. All right? Let me pray for us. Father, we give praise to you uh, that in your mercy, you call people to your son and you raise them up to make disciples. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful and obedient to do just that. Lord, we pray that we would not do it in order to try to build a platform for ourselves, that we wouldn't do it to try to make a name for ourselves, but rather we would do it because we want to see you glorified and we want to see others grow in likeness to Jesus. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.